The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. A very good afternoon to you. It is Monday, the 8th of August, 2022. Can you believe we're in the final stretch of this year? It's hard to believe how this year's flown. I think a lot of us were trying to catch up with all that we lost out on during that COVID period and haven't realized just how quickly time is flying. What's not incredible is that once again during Women's Month, we're now seeing um, the police and the prosecutorial authorities focusing on, on GBV. I always tend to wonder when we have Women's Day and Women's Month, what happens the other 11 months of the year, especially when we hear stories that are coming out of the West Rand where a, a absolutely horrid, horrid incident occurred. And it's something we're going to be talking about a little bit later in the show, and that is why are these areas not being policed, and is there a role that the security companies in South Africa can play? So joining us in a couple of minutes is Mark Natilovitz, very well known to um, our community and somebody who is a specialist when it comes to security operations. But before then, I'd like to remind you that the views expressed on the show aren't necessarily those of Chai FM. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on Chai FM. It's no secret that security officers have become a lot more than just force multipliers on the ground. We saw the true worth of the security industry when they came out to protect people and property during the July 2021 unrest. What some people may be unaware of is that there are more security officers in South Africa than the police and army combined. With the recent raids on the Zamazamas illegally mining on the West Rand, we saw security officers working side by side with their police counterparts. Is it time for the security industry's relationship with state law enforcement to be formalized and should security officers be granted peace officer status? To help us make sense of all of this, we are now joined by respected ex-military special forces member and director of a very well-known Johannesburg-based security company, Mark Natilovitz. Mark, very good afternoon to you, sir. Good afternoon, Chad, and um, thank you for having me on the show. And uh, just like to... Um, Welcome all the listeners out there, and I hope we can give them some interesting information. So we're going into my 10th year on the station, and I've been trying to get you on air for so very long. You're the one guest I've been so looking forward to chatting to, not just because of your exceptionally fascinating military past, but because of the good work your security company has been doing on the ground. Let's talk about the question I raised today. Do you see a need for the relationship between the police and private security companies to become more formalized? I definitely see that there is a space for that formalization to take place. But I think that there, there will be many challenges that we'd be faced in doing that. So first of all, there's constitutional issues, legal issues, etc. But also, the security industry is quite a diverse um, industry where you have big companies, small companies, companies with, uh, that are well capacitated and others that are not. And so I don't think that uh, it would be as simple as passing one set of legislation and then uh, allowing all security companies or security security officers that are out there to become peace officers. It's a very, very complex area, but there's definitely an area that needs ex- to be explored. So I know just pre-COVID, Sira were looking 
And for our listeners, CIRA is the Private Security Industry Regulatory Authority. They, the legislative body that are there to regulate security officers in terms of an Act of Parliament, Act 56 of 2001. So pre-COVID, 2019, 2019, there was talk that CIRA were looking to introduce a specific grading for specific individuals that met the criteria within the security industry to grant them peace officer status. Now, for a lot of people out there that are unaware, peace officer means that they have rights of arrest, unlike the normal security officer who has powers based on the contracts on where they're working, the sites on where they're working, and generally have restricted powers, not the same powers as police officers or traffic officials. Sierra's inspectors themselves have peace officer status, and with the E2 project, which was the Eyes and Ears project, they started to discuss the need to perhaps look at certain companies and certain individuals that met their criteria. Is that a starting point in your opinion? I definitely think that there's room to explore this, uh, this area. But once again, um, South Africa is one of those countries that has got some of the best legislation in the world and best regulation supporting that legislation. But often what comes where we, we come short is in terms of the enforcement or the implementation of that legislation and those regulations. So it's something that must be explored. How it gets implemented eventually uh, need, will take a lot of discussion and a lot of research. Tony Buertis from the South African Security Association says, Considering the levels of serious crime in South Africa, it is probably time for the Minister of Police in conjunction with CIRA to consider upskilling senior security officers to the level of peace officers, especially as the private security sector significantly overshadows SAPs, SANDF, and provincial local metropolitan police in numbers. The recent unrest in KZN and Gauteng, July 2021, now in Tembisa and the West Rand, has more than proved that the SAPS is wholly unable to deal with mass actions and the fact that they have, on social media, been calling on the local security businesses for support in handling the numerous mass protest actions which have all turned seriously violent. Tony, thank you so much for that message. Take into consideration what Tony's saying. He's saying that there are actually calls by the police on a localized level to security companies to come out and support them. So we have seen that a lot, and there there is a lot of informal uh, cooperation taking place in various areas between security companies, individuals working for security companies, and individual policemen all over the country, and it's becoming more and more important that that does take place. In terms of the formalization of it, once again, of course, there's more than half a million people employed in the security industry, which, as you said earlier, um, is um, more than double the military and the police put together, a lot more than double. So there's a lot of capacity there. The question remains, though, is what is the... um, the level of all of those half a million people, what level do they operate at, um, how they're trained, how they're regulated, all of that needs to be looked at. Just as an example, the CIRA gradings are grade A, B, C, D, and E, and uh, grade A being the highest. Now, often when one goes in for tenders or trying to get commercial work in the mining or commercial, commercial environment in South Africa, they'll say they, they're looking for a manager who should be a grade A, and um, 
and perhaps sometimes have a tertiary qualification. Now, just so that the listeners understand, a grade A security officer is not a highly trained person at all in terms of the training they have to do. And in terms of the remuneration uh, put out by CIRA in the Area 1, which is kind of central South Africa, the, the higher played areas, those guys are earning short of 30 rand an hour. Now, you can't hire any high-quality security officer or security manager for 30 rand an hour. It just doesn't work. So if one does want to start taking the security industry, looking at employing the security more formally together with the police to secure the country and um, and and trying to uh, qualify some of those people as peace officers, then the whole grading system has to be re-looked at, which has been looked at in the past and just never implemented. It has to be looked at, and um, we need to we need to find a way to qualify peace officers at a much higher level and consequently pay them at a much higher level. Of course, the people or the entities that are going to be funding this whole story will be commercial South Africa because these guys are not going to be paid by the state. They're going to be paid by the security company's clients. And over there, of course, once again comes one of the challenges where um, the balance between uh, risk mitigation and the cost of risk mitigation and what clients are prepared to pay for their security services. Johan Duploy writes to us, um, we have the resources where upskilling is required, and this can only be done with the willingness of the government to actually get off their haunches and do something about it. With the present political structure of the SAPs, it's very unlikely that anything will be seen as a helping hand. There are, however, issues such as whose insurance is going to cover what in the event of a miscalculation on the part of the private security officer, and this is where the stumbling block has been for the past nearly 40 years. There's definitely some common ground, and the private security industry is probably adequately as- equipped to assist with normal policing issues, while the permanent SAPS members deal with any pockets of insurrection which can, under the present economic conditions, very easily spread into a full-scale fallout quite quickly. We, however, need to keep on trying, as it will be in the best interest of the country if the private security resources can be used as and when needed in the event of mass criminal activity. Johan Duploy, thank you very much for that. And I think that is something that Mark is covering, is the fact that, yes, there's the, the, the numbers of people, and, yes, there are skills, but if one had to unilaterally look across the board at the skills of those 550,000-plus members, the majority don't have the, the higher skill set that we're looking for. Definitely not. There, there are some security companies that have got um, a minority of their people that are involved in more specialized work that are highly trained. And many security companies do spend a lot of money on training their people to a high level. But ultimately, um, that's the minority of the people in the industry, number one. And number two, they're able to do that because they are employed by commercial clients who see that value and are prepared to pay them enough money so that they can see see them see through passing on some of that money into training. But the vast majority of the industry uh, is not like that, and the vast majority of clients that are employing security officers do not see that value and are not paying for that value. Going to our social media page, Bill Sandham says, Power to you, Mark. Great initiative, if in the right hands. Roger Truebody says, Mark is a legend. Respect. And Jackson Slongwani writes, so interesting. Thank you so much. Keep it coming. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we continue our conversation with Mark Dettilovitz regarding the private security industry in assistance to the South African police services. 
You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Moving on, we're chatting today to Mark Natilovitz, an exceptionally well-known security operator in Johannesburg from a company known as Cortec, which kind of sums up a lot of what you do. You started on the tactical side, but now you're looking to the holistic approach to security. You're going to the core of the problem. And one of those issues is the fact that you can't just rely on a reactive security officer. You need to have other measures at hand. And before we went on air this morning, you were chatting to me about the drones. You were chatting to me about your dogs, which are not used in patrols. They're not used on a premises like the traditional use of of guard dogs are. They use differently. So let's start with the dogs. Tell us more about how dogs have contributed towards what you believe can can help counter the threat that companies are facing these days. Sure. So I think the canine industry um, in South Africa is growing, but my, the vast majority of dogs that one sees out there are kind of just a dog on the end of a chain and it's sort of a guard dog. But I think that if one uses dogs intelligently and uses highly professional handlers and very, very well-trained uh, specialist dogs together with the rest of one's operation, that can be a massive force multiplier. And uh, I think that we just have to look at the absolute explosion of the use of dogs in the military context worldwide to realize how important a dog can be. For instance, uh, the United States... SEALs, when they go on an operation, notwithstanding the fact that they have various levels of surveillance, satellites, drones, aircraft overseeing them, thermal imaging on them, they they don't go anywhere without a dog. And uh, that's something that we've also seen is that uh, having specialist dogs can be a massive force multiplier and can really, really help in solving crime. So the dogs that we use typically are patrol dogs that can track, and we also have a few specialist dogs that uh, detect narcotics or explosives, depending on how the dog has been trained, and uh, they make a massive difference to to all of our operations. Typically, um, we don't just deploy one guy with a dog in isolation. They form part of a team supported by other tactical officers, supported by other technologies, supported by drone drone operations as well. So let's talk about that. That's a niche area. We're speaking about dogs. We understand the value of dogs. It's something that people remember back to the old days, yet it's something that is still so exceptionally useful. In 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 several countries in the world, it's not unusual to see a dog <coughs> walking the line where people are queuing to board a flight or if they've just got off a flight. So it just shows the value of those dogs. So let's go back to this whole scenario where we've got security companies assisting SAPs. Have there been times where SAPs have called upon your dogs to assist in projects? So there's very often um, we've been involved with the police and other security companies where they've um, gone to raid suspicious premises and um, done roadblocks and stuff like that. And in cases like that, we've used our, our explosive detection dogs and narcotics detection dogs to support the police. I just want to make it clear, though, that... Um, a privately trained explosive detection dog, there's a legal limitation there. So if our dog would identify uh, explosives or something like that, it has to be verified by the police themselves. But certainly we do help by creating that capacity where, there, where police dogs are not always available and police uh, explosives experts are not always available. So we're the first line just supporting them on a community level. Let's talk about drones. The police are talking 
especially the minister, about rolling out a drone program. You already have. Yes. There, there's certain challenges. Not everybody can put a drone up in the sky. Yeah, so in South Africa, the South African um, Civil Aviation Authority uh, regulates the use of drones commercially. And from that point of view, they've got very, very strict criteria in terms of registering companies to have an ATO, which is an air training organization, and also to have a company which is uh, ROC, RPAS Operating Certificate, to operate drones commercially. So the, the bottom line is to train drone pilots or to operate drones commercially, you have to be registered with the Civil Aviation Authority, and there are very few companies in South Africa that, that are registered. In, on the other hand, Anybody can, at this stage, can walk into any store anywhere and just buy a drone and start flying it. And so there's a, there are literally tens of thousands of drones flying around South Africa, but they are legally not allowed to be used commercially from that point of view. On the commercial side, we train drone pilots in, in all the aspects of flying drones, and we also operate drones uh, very successfully in various Fields. First of all, security surveillance, surveying, uh, mapping, making movies, uh, inspecting equipment, all kinds of stuff like that. We operate them internally for our own use, but we also deploy teams as a subcontracted service to other security companies. And here and there, with the at the request of the police, we've also deployed drones to help specific police with a with a problem that they're facing in certain circumstances. Agent Fuchs writes. I think in most cases the police are just unable to cope with the overwhelming amount of crime they are under. Lack of vehicles, under-resourced, and of course corruption. This is the same with almost every government department. Just take one example, the post office. It, does no, it doesn't work anymore, but PostNet does. There's your answer. Private sector security will work, but who will pay for it? Very, very interesting question. We're expecting the security industry to act as force multipliers. We're hearing... The police call on a localized level when they're doing a raid for security companies to assist. It's great for the, the, the brand of the security company to be out there at the roadblock to be associated with the police, but who's actually paying for the security officer's time? So that's exactly what the point that I was getting to earlier is that ultimately, the security companies that are training their people to a higher level, the security companies that are responding to assist the police, the security companies that are responding to deal with serious incidents um, in the public space, it's their clients ultimately that are paying for that service, for that high level of training, etc. So therefore, um, unless the government would come up with some way of funding a peace officer program of some sort, uh, it's ultimately going to be... South Africa's commercial companies, South African industry that's going to have to have the capacity and the appetite to fund this extra layer of security. So let's, let's take this one step further. If we look at E2, it's companies that have a footprint in a specific area. So if the police in that specific area are asking that security company to assist, okay, fine. They, that company is paid by the residents and they're keeping crime out of that area proactively. Do you ever get calls from the state to assist outside of areas where you have a footprint? So we have had – so you're quite right. The E2, E2 project is a very, very successful project. And just so that for the listeners to understand, E2 is really eyes and ears. But what happens there, there's an informal security-funded control center sitting together with the police. And all of the companies like ours that are in – 
are part of the E2 project are sitting on the same radio frequency, the same radio network. So we, we can test suspicious uh, vehicles with the police that way, and we can also respond to assist the police in that way. And many, many security companies are doing that and assisting. Obviously, when they're doing that, it's funded by the communities that are paying for them or the commercial clients that are paying for them. And there have been cases where we have responded outside of our operational areas. And uh, I guess that's where uh, it's part of our corporate responsibility and, a, and our social responsibility that if there's a need, then we have to respond. We can't say no to those kind of calls. So if one looks at an area like Danfern, a, a massive enclosed estate, and they've now taken it one step further by having a four-ways policing structure that involves both the private sector security as well as the police. If you're going to be looking after that community, which, let's be honest, is a moneyed community, should it not then trickle down to the surrounding informal settlements as well as townships such as Dipslut, where if you're going to have dedicated vehicles, the community that can afford this should also perhaps subsidize something at township level or at the informal settlement level? So the short answer is yes. Once again, it comes back to people's capacity and appetite to want to spend money on the security and also understanding that they have a social responsibility to the rest of South Africa. Not You can't just be looking after yourself and think everything's going to be okay because those around you, everyone is influenced. Your Everyone's well-being is influenced by the environment around them, the people around them. And as I said, you have a social, they do have a social responsibility to look after other people from a purely security technical point of view you can't live in an island of uh, prosperity and security and 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 think that you're going to be safe forever if you're not taking care of the environment around you so i definitely think it's important for um gated communities or more or well more wealthy communities to support uh, initiatives on a broader scale Mark, I recall late 80s, early 90s when there was a lot of unrest, security companies were paramilitary. Coin security took it one step further. Their vehicles were painted army brown. They dressed their staff in foreign legion uniform. And security was seen as being there to support the, the police in terms of protecting private interests. We then saw the 94 election come and go, and suddenly the guys were a lot softer in their appearance. We saw security officers wearing blazers, wearing tires, wearing information sashes, and they became very cordial, and they were the people we went to in shopping malls to find out where the loo was, where the bank was. Suddenly, we started getting hit with banking hall robberies, CIT robberies, and we went back to this whole paramilitary way of doing <coughs> things. Is this as a direct result of the increase in crime or is it as a result of the decrease in policing on the ground? Is it a combination of both, or is there something we're missing? I think that um, you're quite right when you said that um, certainly in the commercial environment, residential environment, people were uncomfortable with the paramilitary look of security. And there are many, many companies that still insist on a fellow in, uh, in gray slacks, a blazer, and, um, and smart shoes trying to do the security, but I, th I think that they're missing the point of the reality of what we're facing in this country now, and therefore 
the security has to be equipped and dressed to first of all deal with the environment they're in. Uh, those kind of uniforms are not really suitable in the middle of winter when guys are trying to do security duty first of all. And secondly, we have seen an increase in crime and a dramatic increase in, in crime and um, I think it's a, a socio-economic problem that we're facing and will take some tough tough action to turn it around. So while there is an increase in crime, you can't rely on if in somebody um, with a red sash, white gloves and a blazer to, to solve the problem. You need to have better trained people that are dressed and equipped for the job to deal with it. Going to our message board, Matthew writes, how does Mark believe the designation of security officers as peace officers will affect availability of staff as peace officers are expected to write statements, take time for court and submit evidence? So this is assuming that CIRA and the Department of Public Safety do agree that at some stage security officers, certain of them will become peace officers. His question is, how will those peace officers be able to fulfill both obligations? So um, I think at the moment we're already faced with a situation where wherever security staff are involved in an incident of some sort and an arrest, they already have to be involved in uh, – they already do take statements or give statements. And once there's been an arrest and prosecution follows, those guy, those security officers already have to appear in court. One – to be designated a peace officer, as I said before, I think uh, there's a legislative issue that comes into it, but also there's going to be, have to be some decisions made around funding. How does this get funded? And then, of course, time off to appear in court, etc., will be part of that funding story. Nothing more than that. Hans Richter writes, um, he was working at Evander Goldmine as an investigator. There's an attempted hit on the gold dust bunker. Approximately 15 armed men took several shots at two security vehicles, um, which was the alarm maintenance vehicle and the patrol vehicle. Both vehicles had approached the scene unknowingly what the situation was. The police station was closed and Although they were aware of the situation and police backup was expected, nothing happened. It was towards midnight when private security specialists with SWAT skills arrived with drones, high-velocity sniper rifles, night vision, etc. They were able to defuse the situation, captured several criminals, others fled, some dropping AKs and their garments to blend in with the informal settlement which was nearby. The police only came the next day. That is... A scary, scary story. Can you imagine working on that mine, in that environment, waiting for police backup? You're basically held hostage while these guys are shooting at you outside, getting closer and closer and closer. And it was the security that responded. Now, you do work on mines. Is this a common occurrence? So I think this kind of occurrence is more common than many people would think. Um, but once again, I, I think it speaks to the deterioration in the country in general and the crime that's completely uh, – the crime that's escalating. And, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about, for instance, the fighting going on in Mozambique against uh, ISIS over there. But we've got our own battle on our hands in South Africa within our borders, and the police – have to be have to get more capacity and uh, private security have to be empowered to be able to deal better with those kind of situations on and i'll say, i'll just say again this is happening a lot more than what people think 
And it's only the clients that understand that and have the capacity and the appetite to pay the right kind of money to the right security companies that are able to protect their staff from these kind of attacks. Most of South Africa is left vulnerable, and most people, as you mentioned before, living in uh, low-cost housing environments, uh, etc., those private citizens of our country are left very, very vulnerable to these kind of situations. Remember, you can message us on 34519 via SMS. David Katz says, I'd like to see investigators given to special category of reservists such as retired police, um, retired or volunteered legal experts working in teams. Could be an awesome force multiplier. Dion Tappen says, the private security sector is the only thing preventing total anarchy. Richard Swell says, we will surely need the security industry to protect or join in the fight when government comes to steal our property. Sylvia Locker says the security firms appear to be very efficient and extremely quick to respond to events. Well done. I want to go back to Dion Tappan's uh, comment when we come back from break. He says the private security sector is the only thing preventing total anarchy. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Before we went to break, I was chatting to... Mark about the importance of force multiplying and where we see um, these E2 projects going, whether there ever will be a formalized public-private partnership. And a message came through from Dion Tappen, and he, say, he said, the private security sector is the only <coughs> thing preventing total anarchy. And I want to talk about that. It's just over a year that our country was thrown into the midst of unrest that was last seen during the last days of apartheid. That was what we saw in the East Rand. It's a cause of Katlong Phosphorus in 92-93. It's what we saw in the Natal Midlands. It's what we saw in Tugela Ferry. It's what we saw in Boipatong. And suddenly we were thrust into this incredible violent state of affairs where for all intents and purposes martial law was declared in certain parts of KZN. But the surprising thing is it was the security companies that kept their communities secure. Would you agree with that statement that the thin blue line is now the security that are in fact keeping anarchy out of our homes? So I wouldn't agree 100% with that comment. Um, I think that in KwaZulu-Natal um, it was a very, very difficult situation. And from what I understand, there were many communities where it was private citizens together with the police and together with with private security that secured their communities. And, of course, I think most of us are also aware that um, in some cases uh, it's alleged that certain private security companies and private individuals overstepped the mark and uh, there's some investigations that are taking place uh, with regard to that. But to a large extent, the support of the private security companies played a massive role in securing uh, what happened in Natal. I've heard reports of some of the bigger security companies flying in extra ammunition to assist the police and extra people to assist the police. And there were many, many um, private companies that shipped in extra security to protect their interests in KwaZulu-Natal at the time. Our company, as an example, um, we, just as a pro bono story, we helped to escort food convoys down down to Natal when there was no food available for people down there. 
I do think that in Gauteng, there's been a lot of reports that the efficiency of the E2 system with the police and the security companies sharing information and responding to incidents went a, a long way in uh, quelling the unrest very, very quickly. And so the situation in Gauteng didn't, didn't descend to the levels that it was in KwaZulu-Natal. Going to our message board, Gary Goldberg writes, Hi, Chair. Trust you are well. I am. Thank you, Gary. Hope you are as well. Says, Can Mark Natilovitz please elaborate on the types of solutions he's put in place to protect the mining industry, seeing that that is the industry that is in the limelight currently? Okay, so thank you for that question. What we've been doing in the mining industry is um, trying to understand what our clients' interests are rather than just purely doing security. And the, the mining company's interest is doing business. They need to mine and they need to uh, sell their produ- product and make money. At the same time, their financial or commercial interest is, has to be balanced with looking after the interests of their staff and the well-being of their staff. So the solutions that we've put in place is, first of all, understanding the information or intelligence picture in the environment that we're dealing with and on the mine in terms of criminals, criminality, fraud, all kinds of people that are trying to do different stuff. Secondly, deploying a lot of technology on the ground to monitor security situations, also to monitor production and health and safety. And through that, um, removing security guards that are operating in dangerous or unpleasant environments so as to keep People safe, because ultimately that's uh, part of the game, is keeping people safe. As a proactive and a reactive measure, obviously we build nerve centers that we man and we, we do, we carry out surveillance using cameras of the, of the security situation, but also health and safety and production. And then we deploy tactical teams with drones and dogs in order to, um, uh, monitor the, the, the broader environment. And, um, our, our, our intention is not to catch people or to make arrests, etc., and lead to conflict, but rather to displace suspicious people. And we do that very effectively with our tactical teams and our drones. Staying on the message board, Matthew writes, The private peace officer is a laudable goal, but the courts and penal system are letting down the police. How will this measure help if we cannot prosecute and hold criminals? Before I hand over to you on that, uh, Mark, I'd just like to answer a little bit there, Matthew. Matthew, I think that a public-private partnership shouldn't just involve the police and the private security industry because you are right. There will be a lot more prosecutions taking place, and the courts at the moment are, are just inundated with matters. And this is why it's so critically important that other disciplines get brought into the public-private partnership. Other courts be created that are manned by people who are giving up their time. Perhaps the one-year community service that we see most professions have, perhaps that should be spread over a period of time where law firms do contribute towards their pro bono hours to help capacitate the NPA. Because you are right, um, it will be very difficult to prosecute and hold criminals if the police and security companies are arresting them and they, they then just left. And I'm sure this is a, a problem you've, you've seen and encountered firsthand, Mark. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
I think that we can't just look at one element in the whole criminal justice system. I guess the criminal justice system needs to be looked at and capacitated. Otherwise, we are going to be failing. And uh, as things stand at the moment, I think if one had to look at how many incidents take place and versus the number of arrests and then the actual prosecutions and the actual convictions, it's not a pretty story. And uh, therefore, the entire system needs to be looked at from the state point of view and also the private private point of view. And um, private-public partnerships are very, very important. I think in South Africa there already is a case where, where private uh, – companies can get involved in assisting with prosecutions and in some cases it's worked very well but I don't think there's enough of that and I suppose quite rightly in a way they're focusing on uh, the high the high profile uh, high profile incidents or cases uh, but that really should be expanded as well. Do we see enough dialogue between CIRA as our regulator, the Minister of Police whose deputy sits on the CIRA board and private security companies to get the the knowledge of what's happening on the ground in order to push this wonderful, at the moment, pipe dream of a public-private partnership forward. Look, I don't I don't believe there is enough dialogue taking place. Um, it could just be that I'm not just not part of the the forum where this is being discussed. But, uh, you know, like very often you hear from people running security companies that their perception of CIRA is sometimes just one of inspectors that are coming around to check on what they're doing and a lot less of working in cooperatively to try and build the industry and strengthen the industry and professionalize the industry. If you were given the power right now to create a silver bullet in respect of what we're seeing happening in terms of the increase in, in violent contact crime. What would that silver bullet be? What's the short-term solution to the problems we're experiencing throughout South Africa? Nice one, Chad. There never is a silver bullet, but I think that um, what would be very, very important would be to create a, a real, a true forum where the police and the rest of the, the government agencies dealing with um, serious crime in the criminal justice system together with players from the pri- from private industry would put a really uh, strong forum together where we can take on all the challenges that are out there, gathering information about criminal syndicates, putting in plans to deal with them and um, and 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 capacitating the police and the private security to deal with them that 's what I would like to see. I think also that once once there 's that kind of forum. And you create transparency in a forum like that. It, it tends to also um, eliminate corruption because it becomes very difficult to be corrupt under a spotlight. And that's what I would like to see, some sort of formal forum where the police, the rest of the criminal justice system and the private sector are working together. As we sit here right now, we take into consideration the number of of members that aren't deployed outside of our borders, those that are currently inside. I don't know if we still have a a a... a Brigade that's 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 able to deploy from a from a, a, a quick perspective out of Bloom. But say for example, we take the the numbers of standard members in South Africa, the numbers of police members, and the numbers of security members. Could we, if those three organisations were capacitated to come together, those three different disciplines, two being public, one being private, could we start turning the tide against crime with the current um, capacity that we have in South Africa? I think that there's enough numbers over there. Um, what one needs is a, is a lot more focus in terms of uh, what needs to be done and who should be doing it. So 
Obviously, from a constitutional point of view and a training point of view, the military are not ideally uh, geared up to deal with crime as such. Uh, and, of course, legally and uh, from a capacity point of view, they, they can support the police in certain environments. But if everyone was working together and the, the focus of the private security was more in dealing with their commercial, their clients' sites, like let's take mining environments and um, the private security were given more powers to deal offensively or assertively with crime on a mining in the mining environments and the police were acting more between the mines with the support of the private private security then you you would get an effective solution and there are areas where this cooperation is taking place informally it's a question of just getting it to become much more formal you start our conversation by saying we have incredible legislation just not the willpower at times. Do you think we've reached that Rubicon in South Africa now where there will be buy-in from all the parties based on the events that we've seen playing out before us in respect to violent crime? Well, I hope what you're saying is true, that it will happen. But, um, you know, the situation, the tragic situation that happened in the West Rand recently that led to quite a lot of action taking place and local communities deciding that they're fed up and rising up against the Zamazamas is nothing new, and it's not isolated to there. It's not suddenly the situation developed and uh, and now somebody's deciding to do something about it. There's thousands and thousands of Zamazamas. There's thousands and, and thousands of other criminals acting all over the country in all kinds of crime. So it would really take a real mindset shift in this country of private private enterprise, private individuals, the police, private security, all, all of us together to decide that we need to turn this country around and, and make a difference. Mark Dettelowitz, it's been an absolute pleasure. Before I let you go, you wear another cap, and that's in respect of what you do for the South African Special Forces. There's an event coming up. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that event? Sure. So um, the South African Special Forces is um, a very, very, uh, very professional and uh, highly respected unit in the South African uh, National Defense Force. And... Um, Many people may not know that this, that the South African Special Forces guys have been deployed all over Africa dealing with uh, terrorism and currently, um, I think it's public knowledge that they're deployed in the DRC and um, were very involved a few years ago in the, what's called the Battle of Bangui in the Central African Republic. And currently the South African Special Forces are deployed in Mozambique battling against ISIS over there quite successfully. Now, uh, 50 years ago, the South African Special Forces were officially started on the 1st of October 1972 in the form of one reconnaissance commando. And so that means on the 1st of October this year will uh, be the 50th anniversary of the official founding of the South African Special Forces. And uh, that whole week, the South African Special Forces in the military and the South African Special Forces Association will be holding a bunch of events culminating in a gala dinner on the Saturday night in Johannesburg, where um, we're going to be celebrating the South African Special Forces and also raising money for the association, which is used to support veterans and to support the families of our serving members. How do the people find out more about that? Well, they can call me uh, or WhatsApp me, email me. I can give my details now if you like. Go for it. Okay. So my cell number is 83 408 Email address is quite simple, mark, M-A-R-K, at cortac, C-O-R-T-A-C, dot C-O dot Z-A. And um, 
perhaps Chai FM will be happy enough to like post something on their website where they can get my details as well. And um, yeah, it's a very meaningful event, and there's a lot of young soldiers today that are are fighting to keep our country safe, and uh, and they far away from their families and their homes up in Mozambique, doing doing what they were trained for. Well, it's great to see veterans such as yourself keeping an eye on the new generation, helping the new generation, mentoring the new generation, and understanding what they're going through. So for that, we extend our thanks, and of course for your service to your country in, in prior years, as well as now in the security industry. The interview with Mark will be uploaded to our podcast page. It's highfm.com. Click on more podcasts. Go to Confidential Brief. It will be uploaded within the next 24 hours. And, of course, there are repeats during the show. Once again, a massive thank you to Mark for coming in. I know he's exceptionally busy. And I've been asking to chat to him for many, many years. And we finally got him in because it's, it's I think we're at a critical stage in our country. We need these public-private partnerships. And we need to make the public aware of what can be done. There's a lot of despondent negative people out there, but there are ways that we can solve these problems together. Mark, thank you. Thank you very much. I'll be back same time, same place next week with Confidential Brief. Thank you so much for joining us.